we need your help today. These um, passages, Lord, are not easy, and yet at the same time, you have given them to us for our benefit, for our good, and to reveal something about our, our own hearts at the same time, Lord, to show us how great a God you truly are and how much, Lord, we need the gospel that you have um, granted us, we who are your children. And Lord, we just ask today that we would be teachable, that we would be mobile, uh, uh, moldable, that we would be um, humble, Lord, to hear what you have to say for us today. And Lord, simply allow me to be your messenger, to, to reflect your truth in, in such a way, Lord, that it would be proclaimed um, by your Holy Spirit through my mouth, Lord, to encourage and equip uh, your body, as well as, Lord, to challenge those who don't know you uh, in their sin to come running to the throne of grace and embrace you as their Lord and Savior. We ask this now in your precious holy name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. This is, uh, um, as, I, as I mentioned before, the, these sections of Scripture are it's the first time I've ever preached through a section like this so, um, so vile, if you want to put it that way, um, so penetratingly evil, the things that we're looking at here. And yet, at the same time, we must press on because this is God's word and God has something for us that he wants us to grasp and he wants us to understand. And so this text is, is meant to be read and understood with the shadow of David and Bathsheba's sin and the murder of Uriah in mind. In fact, as we, as we read this text, it is clear that the events unfolding in some way mirror the events of David's sinfulness um, and his sinful demise. As he watches these events unfold, I'm sure that he is reminded of Nathan's words to him from God through the prophet that communicate to him consequence. David had, had repented, he was forgiven, but there would be consequence, and here's what they say. The sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. And so we're, we're gonna see here today the sword. The sword's gonna come out, and it's gonna come out um, in a drastic way. And so in this chapter, chapter 13 in particular, we have already seen Amnon driven with lust for Tamar. He traps her and viciously rapes her and then sends her away full of shame. But in verse 22, we hear how Absalom responds to all that. Absalom spoke to Amnon, neither good nor bad, for Absalom hated Amnon because he had violated his sister Tamar. Of course, David, we notice, got angry, but did nothing. Absalom responded by welcoming her and, 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 and bringing her into his home to protect her. And so what's driving here, this chapter, what's driving even this section of this chapter is Amnon's rape of Tamar. But there's something else going on, and it's something going on under the surface, and it's really going to be seen as we move into chapter 14. It certainly began with Amnon's rape of Tamar, and the anger and the, 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 the resentment and the hatred that um, Absalom has for his half-brother. But I, I, I think we can confidently say that what else is going on is this. Remember, Amnon is now the heir apparent. Absalom, of course, is the second. And so with Absalom pursuing Amnon in this chapter and getting rid of him, what does that do? It puts him now in the position of being the heir apparent. It puts him in the situation where he is going to be the next one to carry on the throne. And certainly we'll see that in chapter 14, full bore, as we press on in that chapter together. So Absalom could both avenge the rape of his sister as well as clear the way for his eventual ascent to the throne. And he's willing to commit murder to achieve both of those agendas. And in that sense, friends, he is just like his father, isn't he? I mean, last week we looked at 
the proposition being like father, like son in the area of sinful lust. But now as we move on, it's like father, like son in the area or the arena of murder. And of course, David is watching all this going on. And he's seeing this played out right before his very eyes. David committed murder, if you remember, to cover his tracks. Absalom will commit murder for different reasons, but it's still murder. So now Absalom has been nurturing his hatred and plotting his revenge for how long? It says two years, right? Look at verse 23. After two full years, right? Just the narrator is trying to stress the fact. Hey, listen, it's been two full years since the events of Tamar's rape. Two full years. Absalom had sheep shearers at Baal Hazor, which is near Ephraim, and Absalom invited all the king's sons. See, in this passage is laced with hatred with bitterness, with vengeance, with opportunity, and it will end with murder. So let's jump in now to the story. A family celebration, a family celebration. And as we go through just telling the story, we're gonna, we're gonna tease things out, and at the end we'll, we'll wrap our time up with uh, some concluding thoughts kind of flowing out of this particular account. A family celebration out. Let's not forget that hatred and bitterness are driving these events. This sheep shearing celebration has been thought about for a long time. That's the, that's the kind of sense that the narrator wants you to get. After two full years, these things are now taking shape. Absalom has been brooding over it and waiting for this opportunity. Now there's this bitterness You say, well, it doesn't say bitterness. Ah, it doesn't say bitterness, but bitterness is what we see unfolding. Bitterness is a form of anger that settles deep in the heart. Now, friends, it's a word that means to cut or to prick. You can think of bitterness as an internal, self-inflicting wound. And it's a wound that is inflicted internally that festers. Years ago, when I was pastoring in Michigan, um, I was the, uh, uh, my office was, was quite a ways from where the kitchen was, and that's where we, we made coffee. There was just a couple of us you know, that were actually working in the building, and, and um, this is back before the, the Starbucks days and that kind of stuff, and I remember I would, you know, I would make coffee, and I would go down and get my coffee, and I would come back, and I always enjoyed having coffee in a nice good mug, and and um, it was just kind of one of these things that happened with me because I kept my, my mugs on my shelves. And it wouldn't be unusual for me to have a half-drunk cup of coffee and forget about it, and it's sitting on my shelf. And then I, you know, a month later, I, I pick up that coffee mug, and guess what? An experiment has been taking place in my office this whole time, and I didn't even know it. Okay. And there's a sense, friends, in which bitterness is like that. It's, it's this anger that is kind of suppressed. It's, it's pushed down. It's, it's, it's a hurtful thing. And every once in a while, you kind of bring it up and you ponder it and you think about it, maybe in just the, the quietness of your own heart. But it's, it's a festering wound. And it's ready at the right time, put that in quotes, to actually take action. So it is a form of, of anger, and that is exactly what we're seeing here with Absalom. Yes, it's been two full years. Ah, he should be over it by now. So you know what? He's okay. Everyone else might think he's okay, but Absalom's still nursing that wound. So he's been bitter, and he's been plotting and preparing for this particular moment. Now understand this, friends, that bitterness doesn't just cut deep internally. Eventually, it also cuts deep into the lives of others. And that is what we're seeing taking place in this story. Now, Absalom's initial request is this. Verse 24, and Absalom came to the king and said, Behold, your servant has sheep shearers. Please let the king and his servants go with your servant. Understand, this sheep shearing was a community Event. 
that was celebrated by families. So Absalom's request for David and his whole family to join Absalom for this festival occasion, it would be like saying, hey, Dad, you want to come over for Thanksgiving? Bring all the kids. I've got turkey, um, I've got ham, I've got pumpkin pie. Um, All the fixings are going to be there. It'll be a great day. We're going to have lots of fun. You don't want to miss it. Come on over. This is a big event. And you have to understand that David's family was larger than your typical nuclear family. You know, I, my, my family is an, an example of that. For so many years, we lived in Michigan, and in my side of the family was my brother and there's my sister, and, but we hardly got to see each other. When we came out to California, my, my kids were like, everyone out here is my family. I, I'm just bumping into people that are all part of that family. And it's like... Now when we get together for Thanksgiving and Christmas, you know, we're talking 30, 40 people. Um, It's big. Nothing compared to David's family. Think of all the wives, all the kids, all the extensions of that. So this is is a big family event. But, But David is reluctant. Look at verse 25. But the king said to Absalom, no, my son, let us not all go, lest we be burdensome to you. Hey, it's just going to be too much for you. There's too many people for you to feed. How in the world can you handle all of that? That's a lot of people. No, no, uh, we're just going to stay home. But notice how Absalom responds to David's words. He pressed him, but he would not go, but gave him his blessing. You have to wonder if this is exactly what Absalom was seeking to accomplish. A little reverse psychology to get his plan underway, and it works. David says no, but he also gives Absalom his blessing. In other words, hey, listen, I'm not going to go, but hey, all the other family, they can go if they want. Now understand, when Absalom is inviting David and his servants, he is actually inviting David and his sons. You go back there to verse 24. It says, please let the king and his servants go with your servant. The son is asking the king about the other sons coming. So when David gives him his blessing, he's giving approval for the event and for the gathering of some of his family, in particular, his sons to attend. Now that's Absalom's initial request. Now we have Absalom's real request. Absalom was counting on his father saying no because he really wanted approval for his brother Amnon to attend. Verse 26, then Absalom said, if not, in other words, dad, if you're not gonna come, let my brother Amnon go with us. It'd be great. I mean, I'll even let him carve the turkey, you know? He'll have fun. It was a very clear and crafty move on Absalom's part, and David is rightly suspicious in his reply. You can kind of hear it in his words. And the king said to him, why should he go with you? Was Absalom looking to do harm to Amnon? Of course, we know the story. The answer is yes. But from David's perspective, it's been two years, so if he had any grudge, it's probably gone by now. There certainly wasn't too much to be concerned about. The whole of the family's gonna be there. It should be all right. But Absalom knew that he had the king right where he wanted him. Verse 27 says, but Absalom pressed him until he let Amnon and all the king's sons go with him. Absalom's bitter plan was taking shape just as he had planned. David won't be coming, but all of his sons will be coming, and in particular, Amnon. That's, that's just where this, this narrative is taking us. That's the focus here, that, that Absalom is getting his brother Amnon to come into his territory where he is in control, where he can exercise his plan. Now, did you notice how Absalom pressed his father to get what he wanted? I think the, that, that expression is there from the narrator purposely to, just to remind us of how a son can wear down a parent. It's a word that describes an ongoing, repeated pressure that breaks 
through. It's kind of like water pressing up against the levee that, that finally, after it just, uh, you, know, tie, you know, barrage against barrage, just water splashing, it finally gives way and breaks through. So it's kind of like a, a teen who's, who's pressing that parent. And this is what children do. This is what teens do in particular. Why can't I go? Don't you trust me? I'm nearly 18, you know. My grades are good, and I have done my chores. Dad said it would be okay. Mom said she didn't mind. All my homework is done. All my friends will be there. You don't want me to miss out on life, do you? I promise I'll behave. Her parents will be there. If you really love me, you would let me go. Billy's parents are letting him go, and they are really strict and conservative. You've heard it all, right? I'm sure you could add to that list. And just so you know, none of that came from my family at all, just so you know. But this is the kind of wearing down that, that is going on here. And it's, just, it's kind of just teased out there for us to understand that, that Absalom's not just saying, hey, Dad, will you come? I and mean, he's pressing, he's manipulating, he's maneuvering to get what he wants. So part of Absalom's tactic uh, was not only to manipulate his father, but to, to use that repeated pressure so that he would give in, that he would roll over. Now, listen, a, a, this is a very effective tactic. I mean, kids, just put your hands over your ears, right? This is a very effective tactic when a parent is already defeated. They just don't, they don't want to deal with it. You know, okay, okay, enough, 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 I'll let you go, Right? It's a sense in which the narrator is saying he just pressed him and pressed him until David said, all right, fine, I give my blessing. Now, this is the second time in this chapter that David has been manipulated by one of his sons to be a pawn in his sinful plot. It happened with Amnon before as he was pleading with his father for Tamar to come and to, to, to be his nurse, to bake him some food. And now it's happening with Absalom. So the sheep shearing celebration is all set. The sons of David would be present. So far, so good for Absalom. Then we move into the actual murder, vengeful murder. And note, before the guests arrive, what has to happen? Absalom pulls his, his servants, his guys, his, his peeps, so to speak, that are going to be there controlling it all, and he gives them some specific instructions. And this is probably, the, the, the sense here is this is the first time they've, they've kind of heard of what's going on. And notice the plotting that's going on, verse 28. The Absalom commanded his servants, Mark when Abnon's heart is merry with wine, and when I say to you, strike Amnon, then kill him. Now, in, in these instructions, we see the anger, the hatred, the bitterness, and the revenge of Absalom in cold and calculating words as he speaks to his servants. They were to kill him on his signal. But they're to wait for his heart to get merry, be a little unsuspecting, and then pounce on Absalom's words. And, and just to make sure that, that they would follow through, Absalom encourages them and comforts them by taking full responsibility for these actions. He says, do not fear. Have I not commanded you? Be courageous and be, vig- uh, um, be valiant. It almost sounds like you know, Joshua speaking to the armies right, in, in, in the conquest. Or, or, or God speaking to his, his servants, doing something. He, I mean, he's taking, he's taking on responsibility. Now, it appears that Absalom looked on this as an honor killing, much like you would see happen among Muslims in the Middle East. He sees himself, and by extension his servants, as in the right. I'll take responsibility for this. So this is, this is a good thing. Do what I say. You're doing what's right. So there's plotting. Then there's the actual murder that takes place. So the servants of Absalom did to Amnon as Absalom had commanded. Don't you love the way that sometimes the scripture can be, can be bold and sometimes the scripture can just kind of like, doesn't give you all the raw details, but you can just imagine what took place. 
The moment had come, and Amnon had been merry from drinking. And when Absalom gave the order, his servants descended on Amnon and killed him. And we're spared those gruesome details, but we're left with the impression of great danger. How do we know that there's great danger? Because all the other sons, they get up and they go. They scatter. It says, and all the king's sons arose and each mounted on his mule and fled. And the, the, the picture here, and they take this from looking at the whole context of the chapter, is they didn't just flee back to Jerusalem. They fled in all different directions. Because when they eventually come to Jerusalem, they're not coming from the direction that they were actually in. They kind of circled around. So was this justice? Did Amnon get what he deserved? Was Absalom right to kill his brother in this way? Now with all the king's sons fleeing, what will be the future of the house of Israel? I mean, is it in jeopardy? And it just seems like David's house is, is in turmoil and things are not looking good for him. And this is where things start to really get bleak. And so we move now into what I'm calling a crafty rumor. There's a transition in, the, in geographical location now. We were bouncing back and forth from Jerusalem to Belhazor, back to, Bel, back to Jerusalem. And here we are now back in Jerusalem thinking about David and, and the people that are there. And David receives some bad news in the form of a rumor. While they were there on the way, news came to David, it says. What's surprising is how fast the news arrived in the palace. And the news was not good, and we will find out the news was not accurate, but only we are aware of that. But it was the news that carried the moment. And this is what the news said. Absalom has struck down all the king's sons and not one of them is left. That's not good news. Especially when God has made a covenant with you and he has promised that one of your descendants would ultimately sit on the throne and rule and reign. How is all this happening? And of course David, I'm sure, is thinking about the effect of his behavior on his sons in particular. So if that were true, it would be devastating news, especially in light of God's promised covenant. 2 Samuel 7, verses 12 through 16. Let me just read uh, that for you. When it says, when, the, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. So all of this is, is what is promised David. And how can that be true if all my sons are dead? So what hope is there for the family? What, what hope is there for the house of David? Now, I, I just have to ask the question. It's not in the text, but you have to ask the question. Did not Saul lose his position as king because of his disobedience? The answer is yeah. Now here's David experiencing now the consequences of his sin and he's seeing all these things unfold. You wonder what's going through his mind. We don't know specifically, but what we can say is this. Verse 31, then the king arose and tore his garments and lay on the earth. I mean, he, he was grieving at this news. So this wasn't just a rumor. This was a rumor that penetrated the heart of the king where he believed it to be true. This was not good news at all. And all his servants who were standing by tore their garments. But there's something suspicious about the bad news arriving so quickly and so early. How is it that the news surfaced at all? I mean, there's distance between the two. They didn't have cell phones back then, right? There wasn't a telegraph, you know, kind of a process going on here, no. Something else was taking place. So there are some other possibilities. Well, one possibility was that everyone else knew that there was tension between Amnon and Absalom and that there could be some problems going on there and whatnot. But I think there's something even more purposeful 
going on here, that there is actually a purposeful instigator who has been a part of this ruse all along, and that began the rumor of the bad news for a reason. Now notice what I'm calling the source of the rumor. Enter Jonadab. You remember Jonadab from earlier on in the chapter? He was the one that came to Amnon and said, hey, you know, you want to you wanna connect with your sister? I can tell you how to do it. Trust me. Hey, you're, you're the heir to the throne. You can do what you want. Here's what you need to do. That same crafty Jonadab, as he is mentioned there, shows up now, which is kind of a surprise. But here he shows up. And notice what he says to David. But Jonadab, the son of Shimea, David's brother, said, Let not my lord suppose that they have killed all the young men, the king's sons, for Amnon alone is dead. Well, how does he know that? For by the command of Absalom, this has been determined from the day he violated his sister Tamar. All right, that might be common knowledge. Now, therefore, let not my lord the king so take it to heart as to suppose that all the king's sons are dead, for Amnon alone is dead. So Jonadab has it all figured out. But how did Jonadab know what had happened in Belhazor at the sheep shearing celebration? Did Amnon, or sorry, did Absalom share his plans with Jonadab before the celebration? Was Absalom now in, in league with the very man who suggested to his brother Amnon how he could violate Tamar? Has his crafty work, craftiness been at work all this time? Has he devised the plan for Absalom? I mean, there's some things you just, they're not answered in the text, but you're just saying, there's something else going on here. Or were his comments to the king just a lucky guess? I, I, would, I would suggest this. It would appear to me that Jonadab's presence and comments are all part of the crafty plan. That the rumor that begins in the palace didn't come from a messenger, it came from Jonadab. As we'll see, to make bad news seem like good news, you tell bad news that makes the bad news actually sound like good news. If all the sons are dead, that's bad news! Oh, it's not, not all your sons are dead, just one. Oh, whew. see? It's a way to manipulate what has been done to seem less offensive. And so we move then from bad news then to the good news. All of a sudden, off in the distance, a group of people are coming from the opposite direction. It says, and the young men who kept watch lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, many people were coming from the road behind him by the side of the mountain. And all that language is letting us know they're coming from a direction that is different from where they were actually ultimately coming from, that, uh, that place there, Baal Hazor. And Jonadab said to the king again, behold, the king's sons have come in your servant, as your servant said, so it has come about. And as soon as he had finished speaking, behold, the king's sons came and lifted up their voice and wept. And the king also and all his servants wept bitterly. So Jonadab was right. Not all the sons had died. Only Amnon. And Absalom has fled. So the death of Amnon by the hand of Absalom is only good news because of the crafty backdrop of the king believing that all the sons had been killed. Now, you think about David's story. When David got news about the death of Uriah and all these men that died with him, it says, hmm, there were many people that died on that day. Oh, and by the way, Uriah the Hittite, he is dead. Bad news, good news, as far as David is concerned. Now, we want to move on then to 
thinking through now about this, this grieving father at the end. Verse 37, verse 38. But Absalom fled and went to Talmai, the son of Amahud, king of Geshur. And David mourned for his son day after day. So Absalom fled to, went to Geshur and was there three years. And the spirit of the king longed to go out to Absalom because he was comforted about Amnon since he was dead. So Absalom doesn't come back to Jerusalem. He finds refuge east of the Jordan with his maternal grandfather, and David ultimately is mourning, not Absalom, but he's mourning Amnon. It says day after day, literally all of the days, which means the rest of his life. David loved his son Amnon. And what's interesting in this passage is how David feels about Absalom. Now the ESV says that David longed for Absalom. And that he was gone for three years. And during that time, he, he, he longed for Absalom. But the, the Hebrew is actually a little bit more um, ambiguous about what is going on there. The, the longing for, uh, we find there in the ESV, has the idea of he missed him. The longing for that many other translators, uh, translations have is that he longed to go out against him. Now, it's just something for us to think through. Because Amnon, or Absalom, was now outside of, I would say, David's territory. He left him alone. Now, it's also worth noting here that although David is mourning the death of his son, and he was extremely angry at the rape of Tamar, his daughter, in both instances, David does what? Nothing. He doesn't confront Amnon, but hadn't David been guilty of sexual sin? Yeah, and how, how could he confront his son when he's been guilty of the very same thing? He doesn't pursue Absalom. Hadn't David been guilty of murder? Yeah. So how could he then be a hypocrite and rise up against Absalom? David's apparent passivity is to my thinking, the result of his own guilt over his own sin. We talked a little bit about this last time. That that simply because you've committed the same sin now means that you have no voice. At least you feel that way. How in the world could I speak to that situation when I've been guilty of the same thing too? But you have a responsibility as a parent to confront the sin, to speak up. Even though you have failed in that area, hopefully you've, you've resolved that. Hopefully you're forgiven. But with that forgiveness comes the responsibility to carry on stepping into that role and speaking up and doing something. But with David, it just seems like he's stepping back. So I don't think that David just has an issue with being passive. I think that passivity comes as a result of something. It is the fruit of a challenge in his heart. He appears frozen because what he sees in his son is his own reflection. Also, David's unwillingness to bring justice for the rape of his daughter and his unwillingness to pursue Absalom for the death of Amnon leaves the door open for the people to see Absalom as a hero. David is not willing to act. Well, Absalom is. And yes, maybe Absalom shouldn't have done it. But at least he's defending the honor of his sister. At least he's doing something. And as you'll see, the people do begin to rally around him. So by not bringing Absalom back as a criminal... David unwittingly promoted Absalom and began to sow the seeds of the rebellion of his own son. And that results in a horrible war where thousands would die. Now friends, that's just walking through the story and teasing some things out, but there's three areas that I just wanna, I wanna bring our attention to this morning. And um, I need to check how much time I have here. Okay, 
All right, so the first thing I want us to talk about, just to kind of reflect here, is this. Throughout this passage, we have this, this whole driving theme of vengeance. Now, friends, if you're honest, you have felt vengeance at times in your life. You've laid in bed and you've plotted. You've sat in your recliner with a cup of tea and you've thought of ways to bring harm or to challenge or to cause difficulty to someone else because of something that they have done. But I want us to think about it this way. So often when people think about who God is, they think and they tend to drift toward what we might call the the nice attributes of God, right? God is loving, he's gracious, he's kind, he's loyal, he's gentle, he's wise, he's good, he's merciful, and those are all wonderful, awesome attributes of God. But there are other attributes of God without which he would be an ugly and offensive God. Things like God is holy, he's all-knowing, he's all-powerful, he's unchanging. God is also just, and he is a God of wrath. But God's wrath is ugly to so many people because God's wrath confronts people who are entrenched in their sin and are offended that a loving God would actually punish them for their sin. What kind of God would that be? I thought God was loving. He is. He's also just. And a just God will exercise his wrath in a right and holy way. Now, it's not just that he will, it's that he must. God's wrath will be poured out against all ungodliness, against sin. And so Jesus, when he went to the cross and when he bore our sin on his shoulders, he suffered under the wrath of God. This is what you cannot portray in a movie. You can portray Jesus hanging on the cross, but you cannot portray the weight of sin And then on top of that sin, the wrath being poured out on him as that sacrifice. But that wrath was necessary to be the vehicle by which the sacrifice would be consumed, paid for. So wrath was the only answer to the offense of our sin against God. And so Jesus, God's own son, endured the wrath on our behalf. Now there's a, there's a connection here between God's wrath and vengeance. And so turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 12 and verses 19 and following. We want to see this and just kind of develop a few thoughts out of this that will help us to think about the vengeance that, that resides in many of our hearts. What we've seen in this passage is that vengeance will drive us to do horrible things. And so God is saying, listen, I don't want you to act and behave like Absalom. (laughs) Yes, the world might say that's how you deal with it. But God doesn't say that at all. Verse 19, Romans 12. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to what? What? The wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So vengeance, hear this, is an expression of God's wrath. It is God's wrath being exercised, being fleshed out 
That's why he says, vengeance is mine. Therefore, since God is doing or is going to take up your cause and see to it that justice is done, you can lay it down. But sadly, too often, we want to say vengeance is mine. We don't want to leave it to God. We want to own it. We want the satisfaction of exercising wrath and vengeance. Just watch most of the movies that are out today. That's the plot. Someone gets hurt, someone, something happens to them, and the rest of the story is them going around shooting people that did all these things to them. That's what's going on. That's why Christians you know, creating movies, it would be boring, right? Uh, no one's going to be shooting anyone. They'll be like, you know, I'm going to leave it to God. All right, end of story. There it is, right? Just not a blockbuster movie. But that's what we're being called to do here. Why? Because we understand. God says, listen, take your vengeance and give it to me. He's saying, never. How often? Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. He is the only one who is saying, vengeance is mine. And what you have in 2 Samuel 13 is Absalom saying, vengeance is mine. Vengeance is mine. When we start saying vengeance is mine, we can be sure that more heartache and trouble is just around the corner. Instead, when we turn our vengeance over to God, we can go to our enemy and and do acts of kindness. That's what he's giving us here. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. That's just an expression that's just saying the very opposite of, of, of what you think is going to happen will happen as a result of your kindness and your behavior. You're, you're just going to drive them nuts with your acts of kindness. Instead of being overcome by evil, you can just see how vengeance can, can overcome you. Because you plot, you think, you maneuver. I tell you, all you have to do is go on Google, because I did it this week, stories of vengeance. There's a lot of vengeful people out there. There's a lot, and, and, and you know what? And people love it. Not in God's kingdom. Now, the reality then is if you are harboring vengeance in your heart against someone, there's instruction here for you. Let me take it, God says. Never you. Let me take it and trust that I will deal with it rightly and effectively, justly, in a holy and righteous way. Don't you get yourself involved in it. And yet, I I understand how our feelings are driving us to say, but I want to do it. God says, your feelings aren't the issue right now. Your obedience is. Now, friends, this is hard when there is injustice and even the authorities around us will not carry out the justice that is necessary. And we've got to be careful that we don't become vigilantes to get our own way, to carry out our own justice or what we think justice should be. Because we're all tainted by our sin to view things in ways that satisfy our own desires, our own hearts. You say, well, this is, this is righteous anger speaking. That righteous anger just moved over to sinful anger really quick. The place of vengeance is in the hand of God, not in the hands of his people. Secondly, this flows out of this, the power of bitterness. I mean, just for, you think for two years he has been plotting and thinking about what to do and how he can do it. The plan has been forming. It seems like he's even gotten some, some help and some counsel. That's an assumption that is not clearly what the text says, but you know that Absalom has definitely been working his plan. 
But I think that bitterness is one of the hardest forms of anger that we're willing to acknowledge that we struggle with. Because it's not usually something that's out there that's seen. I mean, if you blow up one day, everyone's seen it, you're angry. It's like, yeah, I struggle with that. But bitterness is, it's always hidden, right? I mean, it's always kept there and nursed and protected. I'm going to bring it out and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pet it for a little bit. Right? So we have a hard time dealing with it. You, you may have had a, a conflict with someone years ago. They did something, they said something that ended up being very painful and you got really angry with them. And when you calmed down, it was addressed. They apologized for what they had done and asked you for forgiveness. And you said, I forgive you. But you walked away from that conflict still nursing and stroking your wound. And you might see them every now and again. And you find yourself being very, very cold. You say in your heart, I don't want anything to do with them. The reality is, you never really forgave them because you're still nursing, still nursing, still stroking, still playing with this bitterness in your heart. You're eaten up with bitterness. You said the right words. On the surface, everything seemed restored, but beneath the surface was a heart harboring bitterness. The sad reality with bitterness is the person you usually hurt the most is yourself. Years ago, Paul Harvey shared this story. I'm sure you've heard it plenty of times, but how an Eskimo kills a wolf. He talks about they would, they would take a, a knife and the Eskimo would, would, would dip it in blood and he would freeze it. And that would get a coating of blood. Then he would dip it again in blood and he would freeze it. And then dip it again. So, that, so the, basically all you had was just kind of like the stick that was covered in blood. And he would plant it in the ground. And when the wolf would come and its nose, being sensitive to blood, would find it, he would, he would discover it and he would begin to lick it. And the more he licked it, the more he would find that this blood was there. And so he began to lick it even harder and, 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 and with greater intensity and not realizing that as he was licking it now, he was cutting his his tongue, and he was actually licking up his own blood in the process. And eventually in that process, that wolf would die, trying to satisfy itself on its own blood. It's, just, it's a wonderful picture, isn't it? Happy Thanksgiving, right? But, but friends, th- th- this, is, this is the picture, in a sense, of, of what bitterness is like. You think that stroking that bitterness feels so good, but every time you're stroking that bitterness, you're digging a a, a sharper wound into your own soul. And you're causing great damage, and you don't even know it because you think you're justified in being bitter. I'm sure that all of you have met a bitter person. Sometimes bitterness comes out in how people talk, just the harsh words and how quickly they turn to, you know, this person they hate or whatever it might be. Sometimes this bitterness comes out in their physical appearance. I've met some people who are bitter, and, and honestly, you could just see it in their, just in their persona and just how they look, how they carried themselves. See, bitterness works from the inside out. So what's the answer to Bitterness. The answer is very simple, but before we consider the answer, we need to realize that bitterness comes as a result of a hurt of some kind. In other words, bitterness is not its own, uh, its own, its own, I want to say root. It comes as a result of something. It is a response to a hurt. So the question is, how do we respond to that hurt? That's the key. How have we responded to a particular hurt? Now, Ephesians 4 and verse 31, the Apostle Paul says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Now, these are all different descriptions of different kinds of anger. A study of that would reveal a number of things. Bitterness, of course, is that deep-rooted thing. Wrath is that kind of like instantaneous outburst 
Um, anger is just the, the, the typical, I'm just getting angry. Clamor is more the fist fighting kind of a thing. Um, it's a road rage. You know, slander is anger with words. Uh, and malice is just the attitude behind it all. It just kind of, it's like the mortar between the bricks of all these things, right? But we're focusing here on bitterness. So if a person by their words or actions drops a seed of bitterness or hurt into the soil of your heart, you have two choices. Choice number one, you can reach down and pluck it up and, and forgive that offender. Or secondly, you can begin to cultivate the seed by reviewing the hurt over and over and over again in your mind. You see, bitterness is the result of dwelling too long on that hurt. And so verse 32 then tells us this, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. If you look at the context of there of Ephesians 4, you actually have this put on and put off dynamic in play. And you have the, the put off would describe what happens in verse, what needs to be put off in verse 31. In verse 32, these are the things that you need to put on. This is what God is calling you to do. So be kind to one another means put on kindness, put on being tenderhearted, put on forgiveness. And what's the basis of that instruction? As God in Christ forgave you. So the antidote to bitterness is a Christ-like kindness and tenderheartedness and forgiveness. If you're bitter, you haven't forgiven. So friends, I just challenge you as you, as you think in your own heart of, of those hurts and those people that come to mind that you've been nursing for years, God is saying to you, wait a second here, vengeance is mine. <laughs> if that person needs to be fed, feed them. If they need a drink, give them something to drink. Be kind, be tender-hearted. Be forgiving. Now this last one I want to finish today is really a challenge to us as parents. One of the things that struck me, and I'm going to, I'm going to deal with it early, and we'll see it repeatedly here, but um, it's not easy being a parent. Um, yet at the same time, as we look at David in these chapters, one thing that seems to be uh, on, on show for us here is how disconnected he is with his, with his kids. There's little warmth or tenderness that you would expect between father and sons. I mean, you, you just think about maybe David and, and his friend um, Jonathan. If you remember, David and Jonathan were actually separated by years. Jonathan was considerably older, David younger. But you see in that relationship, you see this, this tenderness, you see this, this warmth, you see this camaraderie, but you don't, you don't sense any of that going on here with the family at all. There's just like a, I'm the king, and there's this kind of like a, just a coldness going on here. They're really not spending time together doing anything. But David still had an influence on his sons. And sadly, the, that influence was only to see his sons act and behave just like he had done. So it's a horror for any parent to suddenly realize that their children are more like them than they can imagine. The reality is that you and I can be modeling the wrong kinds of things, sinful habits, sinful thoughts to our children throughout the years. There's a very famous song that came out in the, in the 70s that describes all of this. It's called The Cats in the Cradle. You may know it. The song is a story of a father who's been too busy to spend time with his son, to talk with him, to play ball with him, just to enjoy him. He keeps promising the boy that they'll get together and have some good times. Here's how the, the chorus goes. And the cats in the cradle and the silver spoon, little boy blue and the man in the moon, will, when... When you're coming home, Dad, I don't know when, but we'll get together then. You know we'll have a good time then. And in the refrain of the song, the child, uh, as he's growing up, he, he just wants to be like his dad. He wants to, to do the things his dad is doing, and he wants so much to, to follow his example. And as his son grows up, the dad finally wants to spend time with his son. But as predicted, that child becomes just like 
dad and is more interested in his own life. And here's how the father recognizes all of this in the last stanza of the song. He says, I've long since retired and my son's moved away. I called him up just the other day. I said, I'd like to see you if you don't mind. He said, I'd love to, Dad, if I could find the time. You see, my new job's a hassle and the kids got the flu. But it's sure nice talking to you, Dad. It's been sure nice talking to you. And as I hung up the phone, it occurred to me, he'd grown up just like me. My boy was just like me. Now the point here is this, that our kids are catching and they're learning and they are being influenced by us as parents, by dads who are more concerned with other things, by moms who are consumed with the things that they're consumed with. How are we as parents shaping our kids? How are we impacting them? Is it in a way that would would nurture them in the ways of God or is it simply an excuse then to act and behave in a way that really puts God out of the picture? Or is it somewhere in between? The reality is we have an incredible example for us in this chapter of a father that just seems to be disconnected with his sons and now his sons are running rampant. My friends, that is not a good example but it's a warning for us. And it's a challenge for us today. What are you doing as a parent with the influences that you have? What are you doing as an adult with those who are your friends even around you? What are we doing as the body of Christ to encourage one another in the ways of God? Or are we simply being examples or excuses of not having to follow God, doing what we want to do? And the cats in the cradle and the silver spoon, little boy blue and the man in the moon. When are you coming home, son? I don't know when, but we'll get together then, Dad. We're gonna have a good time then. Lord, there's a lot of things for us to think about. We identify with some people in the story. Some of us identify with Absalom harboring a hatred, harboring a bitterness. That's planning and plotting some kind of revenge. Some of us can identify with David being disconnected, removed, frozen, unable to respond because of the feeling of inadequacy or hypocrisy of our own lives. But Lord, there's no example here for us to say, this is what we want to be like. And that leaves us with really only one option, Lord, and that is to see that you've given us this passage to be a warning to us, to push us to see that you are the answer for the struggles of this life, that, that, that vengeance is something that you hold in your hand. That our bitterness is a result of us not trusting you and forgiving those who have offended us. Lord, help us to not just give up when life seems a mess, but to stop and to reflect to consider the fact that we are still your children and you are still our great God and Savior and that we can still repent of our ongoing sin and we can still be restored to fellowship with you and we can still pursue those relationships that we've neglected and we can still put uh, breaks on that bitterness or that vengeance that we've been plotting. We can, we can stop going down the path of sin, Lord, because you are the one who sits on the throne. You are the one to whom we cast all our burdens. You are the one who says to us, vengeance is mine. 
I will repay. Lord, help us not to try and play God. Help us, Lord, to trust the God who rules and reigns and loves us and has done so much for us. Oh, Lord, we need you. We need your help. We need your counsel. We need your strength and we need your comfort. Help us, Lord, to turn to you, to run to you, to rest in you for your glory, we ask. Amen.